Hey, Father, it's always our joy to gather, and it is especially our joy to gather around the Word of God. And so use your Word through the preaching of the Word today to challenge us and to grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, there is a a rather worn out story that um, that uh, I, I think still holds on to its humor at some level. It's about a, a seminary graduate, a young man graduated from seminary, and he wanted to take a church and become a pastor. And so he's meeting with the pulpit committee of this particular church that was interested in interviewing him to be their potential pastor. So they gathered together, and this seminarian gathers, and the chairman of the pulpit committee and the elders are there, and uh, he said uh, to the young man, he said, son, uh, so what part of the Bible do you like best? The young man replied, well, I guess I like the New Testament best, to which the chairman replied, well, tell you what, he said, why don't you tell us a story? Perhaps your favorite story in the New Testament. And the young man said, well, I think that my favorite story is the story of the prodigal son. So the chairman asked him to tell the story so that they would know how much Bible knowledge that he had before they voted on him as their pastor. Here's what he told them. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and fell upon stony ground and the thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Sodom and his wife Gomorrah came by and carried him down to the ark of Moses to take care of him, but as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb and he hung there 40 days and 40 nights. And he would have, an, and he would have afterwards hungered and the ravens came and fed him. Well, the next day, three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock where he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall and he said, chuck her down, boys. And they said, how many times should we chuck her down? And they said, they said, seven times seven. And he said, nay, 70 times seven. So they chucked her down 499 times and she burst asunder in their midst and they picked up 12 baskets of the fragments and, and in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? The chairman said to the committee, well, gentlemen, he said, uh, I know he's very young, just out of seminary, but I think we ought to call him because he really knows his Bible. (laughs) And if you don't know your Bible, that probably wasn't very funny to you. (laughs) But why does it matter who's in the pulpit? What's the big deal about hiring a pastor? Why does it matter who's in the pulpit? I'll tell you why. Because as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. You hear me say often that there's nothing more important around here than pointing boys and girls to Jesus Christ. And I maintain that's right at the top. But tied with it is who's in the pulpit and what's being proclaimed from the pulpit. We are in a series today, um, renewing our series in the book of Acts this morning, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, because interestingly enough, uh, what we encounter immediately after the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost is a great sermon preached by Peter. What I'd like to do today as we review Peter's sermon, and there is significant length to it, is I would like us to do two things. I would like us to understand the content of what Peter is proclaiming. What is Peter preaching? And and beside that, though, in a parallel note, I would like us to examine preaching. What goes in a sermon? I'm asking the question these weeks as we renew our series in the book of Acts, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do around here in the church? Have you noticed how much time we spend listening to sermons? One of the main elements of our ministry here is that we come into this room, we sit down, we open our Bibles, we sit still, and we listen to the word of God being proclaimed. Why do we do that? Well, it's a long tradition, and it started on the day of Pentecost. In the church, preaching is central to worship. 
And this is what got it started. And what I'd like to do, this is not homiletics class. Homiletics is the, is a class that you take in Bible college or seminary that, that is the science or the, the practice of preaching. It's kind of like a, a specialized speech class and you learn about introduction and proposition and transition and, and gestures and, and the rate of speech and the volume of your speech. We'll not talk about a lot of those things, but in, in, a, in a, uh, kind of in a similar way, we will break down Peter's sermon for our outline as we go into the parts of the sermon. And in so doing, let's glean the content of his message, but let's think about how we listen to messages. We do it a lot. We're in this room a lot listening to the preacher. Are you good at listening to sermons? Do you get the most benefit out of the preaching of God's word? Or maybe is your attitude towards preaching such that you miss the blessing of tremendous spiritual growth and opportunity in encountering the word of God because you don't care about preaching? Well, I just ask you to turn to the book of Acts because that's where we are renewing uh, our sermon series that we ducked out of some months ago as we began to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and then the gifts of the Spirit and so forth. And uh, that all was triggered by what happened in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Uh, Let's just remind ourselves, if you're turning to the notes, let's remind ourselves of just a couple of things by way of of bullet points of uh, getting our minds back in gear on the book of Acts, and then we'll get into Peter's sermon, and we'll look at the content and the structure of Peter's sermon. First of all, let's remind ourselves that Acts was written by Luke. Remember that right before the book of Acts in our New Testament comes the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you were to look at the first opening introduction uh, verses in the Gospel of Luke, it's a little bit similar, and you're going to encounter uh, a familiar name uh, in the first verse of Luke that you find in the first chapter and the first verse of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, okay, he's talking about Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in the first book Oh, Theophilus. Theophilus was a friend of his, an acquaintance of his, that evidently wanted an accurate record of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke, you know, was not one of the twelve. He was not an eyewitness to the works of Christ. He was evidently a physician, and he was a historian. Based upon what scholars who have studied Luke's work, largely Luke, the gospel, and Acts, uh, Bible students who've looked at it will say that Luke had a tremendous mind for detail and a tremendous ability to capture in words what he had found out. He was a great communicator. He was an excellent historian. So he must have been a detail guy. He must have been very, very bright, smart, academically even. And so he had researched an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus for his friend Theophilus. That's the gospel of Luke to put it up against the other three gospels, Matthew, a disciple, Mark, probably writing Peter's account, eyewitness account, scribing for him, and John, the beloved. And so we put those together and we have this balanced and wonderful uh, panorama of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through these different writers and different perspectives. So when we come to Acts, what, what was really happening is Acts is Luke just picking up where he left off at the end of his gospel. And so that's why he writes in the first book, Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he goes on to talk. He presented himself alive to them. He gave them instruction. And so he's picking up for Theophilus where he left off the accurate account of the ministry of Christ. Second thing you need to remind yourself about Acts is that it is history. It is history. It's really a history book. It's a record. It's the record of the ministry of the apostles in the first century and and as they established the foundation of the early church. So when you read Acts, you're reading living history. This is how it happened. Okay. Thirdly, 
in this work, the Acts of the Apostles, that's the title, the Acts of the Apostles, the Actions of the Apostles, it is with a major focus on the ministries of two individuals. So when you read Acts, think about the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 12, largely dealing with the ministry of the Apostle Peter. The second half, 13 to the end, 28, you have largely the ministry of the Apostle Paul, okay? Now, you're going to have Paul's testimony uh, earlier before chapter 12 is over. He's going to duck out around chapter 8 or 9, and he's going to give the testimony of Saul of Tarsus being knocked down on the road to Damascus and God renaming him Paul, and he becomes the mighty apostle to the Gentiles. Something else I could have added to the list that you could pencil in that is helpful to remember is that that first half of Acts, as you deal with Peter, is focused on the Jerusalem church, Jews. The second half of the bat, uh, so the church started with the Jewish community in Jerusalem. The second half of the book of Acts, chapter 13 and on, the ministry of the apostle Paul, remember that that deals with the Gentile world, and that is the missionary journeys of Paul and the church planting ministry of Paul all around the known world of the day. And we're going to track some of that through the book of Acts as we remind ourselves of this great history. So one of the things we remind ourselves of, this little cliche, is that when we read Acts, it's history. So we sometimes say this, what we're reading is descriptive, it is not necessarily prescriptive. In other words, Acts is just history being laid out for us, an account, but it is what the apostles did in the very establishment of the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and forward for this church age. Don't you think that if the apostles did it, we ought to pay attention and try to do things a little bit the way they did it. They learned from Christ. They established the church. But do remember that they're not going to give us commands. Thou shalt do church at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. It's not there. There aren't the thou shalts. There aren't the put on, the put off, do this, don't do this. It is just a description of what has happened in the establishment of the early church. And so we learn from it, but we recognize that it's not filled with directives to us. So that's just kind of an interesting way to look at it. It's filled with messages. There's going to be more than just Peter's big uh, opening message. There's going to be a number of testimonials word uh, given to us in, in the language of the person speaking, in the words of the person speaking, and different messages are recorded for us that we will learn theology from, but largely it's history. So what have we seen so far in the book of Acts when we started in chapter 1 some months ago? And what we saw, first of all, is we, we saw Jesus telling his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He promised he would send the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in John 16. And there they went to Jerusalem and they were waiting. He's going to leave, but he's going to send his Holy Spirit. The disciples were upset about that, but Jesus told them, no, this is necessary and it's to your benefit that I leave because the Holy Spirit will come and he's going to do things that I don't do. And he's going to stay with you. He's going to indwell believers all around the globe today. As pastors get in their pulpits and proclaim Christ in Malawi, our dear brothers, six hours ago in the village churches proclaimed Christ and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit used the word of God in the village churches and all around the globe and here in Shenandoah Junction and with Pastor Mark in Buffalo Mills, Pennsylvania and with Adam Johnson in Bakerton and with Jim Shupe in Hagerstown, the Holy Spirit is there. When Jesus was on earth, he could only be in one of those places at a time. The Holy Spirit is ministering all around the world, doing in some ways greater things than Jesus ever did. So he gave the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's where we have that great commission too uh, in Acts 1.8. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you then, you will be my witnesses of the resurrection. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Secondly, we see the ascension of Christ right after that in chapter 1. Jesus goes up in the air. They watch him go. Thirdly, you have that extended passage where Peter calls them together. There's at least 120 of them, uh, the apostles, the disciples, 12, the 12 and other disciples of Christ. 
outside of the 12. And he spends significant time dealing with the replacement of Judas. Remember Judas the betrayer? And he had hung himself. And now they had an open slot in the office of the apostleship there. And they wanted to replace him. And they give quite a bit of an account in chapter 1. And they select Matthias. And then you never hear of Matthias again. Isn't that interesting? And then finally, what do we have? We have the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And there he comes, the Holy Spirit comes, and it was a loud event, a rushing wind. They're in Jerusalem. It's about nine o'clock in the morning, tongues of fire. The evidence of it was that they could then speak in other languages. And we see that starting at about verse seven, at the It was such a loud event that evidently uh, the community ran to center city Jerusalem to see what in the world was going on. And that was the feast, was uh, the Passover and Pentecost was being celebrated. And so they came Jews, Jews had come from all over the world, different nationalities, for for, uh, Pentecost, to celebrate Pentecost. And the city was full of internationals. And so here the apostles could preach in other languages. And it was stunning. And so this, this, the setting is this entire audience of several thousands of people who have gathered Center City, and we get to our text today. And I want you to notice that after all this, this marvelous, amazing, mind-boggling moment when the Holy Spirit comes with tongues of, as it were, fire and a rushing wind, and they have this response of speaking in languages that they hadn't learned previously. The first thing that happens then in the, so you can consider this the beginning of the church. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. This is the very first day of the new church in Jerusalem. And the first thing that happens after the coming of the Holy Spirit is that a sermon breaks out. Peter preaches. Isn't that interesting? So let's read his entire message. It's going to take me a few minutes to read it. I hope that you never weary of the word of God. And I hope that if you aren't familiar with this passage, that it will be very helpful for you then to know what our text is today. And then we're going to break it down and we're going to look at the parts of his sermon and the content of his sermon so that we understand the message. So here they are. Let's back up just a little bit. Say verse 10 as the tail end of all these nations, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya. This is chapter 2, verse 10. Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language, verse 8 is where they ask the question, how is it that we hear this in our own language? They heard all of this telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And namely, that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In everybody's language, they're hearing the eyewitnesses of the resurrection talk about the mighty power of God to resurrect Christ from the dead. And all, verse 12, were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? What in the world is going on here? But others, they were cynical and mocking. They said, oh, they're just filled with new wine. Nine o'clock in the morning and they're just drinking getting drunk. Now notice what happens. Verse 14. But Peter, now Peter has already established himself once Christ departed, didn't take Peter long to take charge. And he was the one who told them we need to replace Matthias. He's the one who ran the meetings. And now this huge thousands gathered with the disciples. See that? Peter standing with the 11 somehow elevates himself steps forward, maybe steps up, with a loud voice, he addressed them, men, including men, women, and children, people of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, about nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. But this... I'm telling you, Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And now he's going to quote in this message, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Listen to Joel, the Old Testament minor prophet. Listen to his prophecy as Peter pronounces it, recites it to the whole audience. 
And in the last days, it shall be, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's done quoting Joel. That was an extensive quote of Joel. Now verse 22, Peter looks at the audience and continues. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, In your midst, as you yourselves know, you saw it, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now he's going to quote David from the Old Testament from Psalm 16, a messianic psalm. For David says concerning him, and his audience would have been well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. David says concerning him, Peter says him is the Messiah that they saw of his miraculous works and that God raised from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth. David said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Now he's done quoting David from Psalm 16. He turns back to the audience. Peter's words. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And it's like, it's right over there. Go see his tomb. Dig up his bones if you want to. Being therefore, verse 30, a prophet, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So in Psalm 16, when David wrote, he wasn't writing about himself, he was writing about his descendant, Jesus. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, Of that, we are witnesses. I imagine he points to the other 11. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's going back to explaining and answering their original question, what in the world happened here today? Well, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. The Father gave permission for the Holy Spirit through Christ to be given according to his promise to the disciples at Pentecost. And Peter is saying, and that's what you just saw. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my heaven, sit at my right hand until the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it wasn't David that's sitting at the right hand of God. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain. I want you to know this for certain, Peter's preaching, that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I think that's the key verse in the whole passage. Let me read it again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter, verse 38, said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That would be non-Israelites as well. That's what's going to happen in the book of Acts. The gospel is going to go to those who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'd say that was a pretty good response to a message. What a big day for the first day of the Jerusalem church, and what a response to the first sermon that was preached in the church age. Just think how many sermons have been preached since the day of Pentecost. Why do we do that? Why through Christendom has preaching been the central act of worship? Because we're together hearing the word of God. And look at what happens. Immediately, Peter sets a model for preaching. Well, let's break it down and let's, let's do as I said. Let's kind of have a double track here. Let's comment on how to listen to a sermon, what to watch for in a message, how to improve and benefit from the word of God as it's preached from the pulpit. And let's also get the content of Peter's message and let the word of God impact our lives. And the first thing we have when we understand a sermon and someone's going to speak and they're going to handle a topic, what do they do? They have an introduction. They have an introduction. I, I used a funny story to pull our attention together and, and to get you right here with me. And then I said, okay, we're going to talk about preaching. Why is preaching matter? Preaching matters because as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. That's really part of the point that we want to get from this message. This is so important. The elders must guard this pulpit. And Peter is setting a model. He didn't spread out the disciples and then and they do a play act and do a drama. Hey, we're going to do a drama for you and then the band's going to play. I'm not against drama in the band, but, but that's not what we do when we gather. We listen to the preaching of the word of God. That is what Peter does here in Jerusalem. There's a whole crowd. He gets up and he preaches. In his case, his introduction was unplanned. In fact, the whole sermon was unprepared in the sense of he didn't sit down with his commentaries and work late into the night after he'd been at Indiana uh, for his buddy's funeral, finishing up his sermon notes. I don't even know if he knew for sure he was going to preach right then. But the question came from the audience and Peter steps forward and he just goes with this message. It just spills out of him. That's when preachers preach best is when the message is so inside them that it just spills over. It's the spillover of the study and the walk with Christ of the pastor, of the preacher. So his introduction was really the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the great noise and a whole crowd comes and everybody's there. And so his introduction was unplanned. It was a perfect way for him to have an opportunity to speak. But let's just think about how important the introduction really is. First of all, it calls the attention of the audience that, okay, look up here. Now it's time. That's what Peter does. Look at verse 14. Standing with the 11, he lifts up his voice. He got their attention and he calls out. There's no amplification, but he must have had a big, booming, loud voice and he gets everybody's attention. Look up here. We, we have something important that's going to happen. Secondly, it often creates, the introduction should in a good message, the introduction should create a question in the mind of the audience and the audience by and large should all be asking the same question at the same time. Why is preaching so important? Well, why is it? His question that the whole audience was asking was, what just happened here? What is this all about? And you want your introduction to whet the appetite of the listener, pull their brain in from all the things that are there, get them to shut their phone off, and to ask a key question. So why is it that we do what we do? Well, you know, I never thought about how much time we sit in the audience and listen to preaching. Why do we do that? Maybe we could have a little more fun around here. So we all have the same question. 
It at least stirs, it stirs the curiosity of the listener to want to know. Well, I kind of want to know. Thirdly, it points the listener then to the word of God. The introduction leads us to the word of God and our purpose for going to the word of God. And that's exactly what Peter does. He says, he raises his voice, calls them in, clarifies these guys are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. So he gives some explanation of what's going on. And then he says, but let's go to Joel in the old Testament and I'll show you what's going on. And then he quotes that extensive passage from Joel And I've called this Roman numeral two in our outline. Um, He's moving out of his introduction, but he hasn't really gotten to the main point of his message yet. He's, it is, it is helpful preparation for the message. And sometimes preachers will do that. You got to be careful not to get bogged down on that. But sometimes the listener need some helpful preparation for knowing why we're there and what we're doing. I did that a little bit with the what we've studied in Acts already and what Acts is all about. Some helpful preparation. He quotes Joel to answer the initial question that's in the mind of the audience. What in the world's going on with all these people speaking in languages they never knew before? The sound of rushing wind a little while ago. What in the world was that? Thousands of people are gathered. He quotes this extensive passage. And immediately, uh, some of the information that the passage from Joel gives the listener is that, that, well, let's just say the Holy Spirit's dramatic coming was prophesied by Joel, letter A. First of all, he wanted them to know, I will tell you what happened and we can see it in Joel. And that's what he says in verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That is that the Holy Spirit is going to come to all people and there's going to be a significant response to that of prophesying and dreaming dreams. Now the charismatic movement turns to this passage and they say, see, that's why we can dream dreams and interpret dreams and have all these extra messages coming. But I don't think that's what he means there. I think he's talking specifically about what happened on Pentecost and that, and then other, I think he's also referencing under the apostolic era some of these things that happened. You don't see that in the apostles, in the epistles, excuse me. And so the first couple verses, he's saying, you want to know what happened with this rushing wind? You want to know how this tongue speaking languages went on? This is what Joel said. It happened. He prophesied. The second thing he said that should have caught the audience's attention is that Joel said that in the last days this would happen. So in Israel of old, they believed, the Jews believed in a resurrection of the dead in the last days. For Peter to get up and quote Joel and say, in the last days, this is going to happen, should have triggered another question in the audience or a reality in the mind of the audience. And that is, oh, so now we're in the last days. And the answer to that is yes. As soon as the Holy Spirit came, Peter says, Joel said, this happened. This is the marking of the last days when the Holy Spirit comes. So we've been living in the last days for over 2,000 years? Yes. We didn't take time in this outline to support the evidence, but in the New Testament, there is ample evidence that the writers of the New Testament absolutely believed that they were living and writing in the last days. What we have to remember is that with God, 2 Peter 3, One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So 2,000 plus years has gone by, just a little over two days on God's calendar has gone by. Now don't use that to confuse the creation days in Genesis. They were not a thousand years long. They were 24 hours. It's it's just an illustration. It is just um, an example. I'm still not pulling up the right word. It's a figure of speech. That's probably still not best. We'll let that go. It is a way of saying that in God's mind, there's not any difference between 24 hours and 1,000 years. God is outside of time, so he's not in a panic here. And in fact, 2 Peter 3 says that he delays his coming, this great day of the Lord and his judgment. He delays it so that people will hear the gospel and be saved. 
But as the audience there in in Jerusalem hears this, right away they're getting an answer from Joel. Okay, this is what Joel prophesied, that these things would happen in the last days. So it marks the last days, and the church age is the last days. There seems to be a part of this passage, though, that is yet unfulfilled. Look at verses 19 and 20. He goes, as he's quoting Joel, he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Now, if you were in our Revelation class Wednesday night, we read almost those identical words from end of Revelation chapter 6 when when the sixth seal is broken. And when you go to chapter 16 and you read about the bowl judgments pouring out on the earth. So it would seem that this didn't happen yet, but Peter's quoting it. What's interesting about this, Peter doesn't really explain it. They say, what happened here today? Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel said, quotes Joel and then moves on to the part of the sermon he wants to preach. So that's all we have. But it is preparation for the rest of his sermon. But I would suggest that not all of his prophecy has yet happened. It is possible that that section on the dreaming of dreams and your children prophesying and so forth are activities that will be in, there's evidence that that could be millennial as well in the new kingdom. I don't know for sure. And then he says, and it shall come to pass, verse 21, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Letter D, deliverance is found in salvation. In other words, right before that, in verses 19 and 20, he talks about these cataclysmic events. The sun is going to be darkened. The moon is going to be red. Why? From dust particles or something is going to be in the atmosphere. It's not good. It's not good when the sun is darkened and the moon turns blood red. Something's going on. And it's indicative of the judgment of God upon the earth. And he reminds them, but don't worry. When it comes to pass... Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So deliverance is in our salvation in Christ, he says. So there's some helpful preparation from Peter. But now, notice in verse 22 that he turns again to the audience after he's done quoting Joel. And in verse 22, he calls them up again. Men of Israel, people of Israel, everybody gathered here, hear these words. See? So here we find, Roman numeral three in our outline, here we're going to find in Peter, in this message, the main theological foundation of his message. Peter's got something he wants to preach. He's had an introduction, his audience is drawn in, he's prepared them with some comments from Joel, but now he wants to really get at to the main point of his message. You'll find that preachers do that all the time. Sometimes you go in a panic because I have... Like today, I have nine points to the outline. You're like, oh, my word. Usually among the nine points, if you watch, there's going to be one main point that we really want to drive home. Peter's got a main point that he wants to drive home. It's theological, and it's foundational to the New Testament church, and it's foundational to these people who are Judaizers, and he wants to bring them into conversion to follow and become disciples of Christ. Let's read again what he said in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So you saw him heal. You saw him heal the blind. You saw him raise the dead. He did it in your mess. You know this yourself. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You have right away the juxtaposition of the sovereign plan of God unfolding. God God gave him over, but you killed him. You got the activity of man and the coordination of the plan of God working together there. He then begins to quote David. So what's happening here is that, well, no, no, let me finish the section here to make the point. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what we see right away as we're listening to Peter preach, we have a question. What in the world's going on? Oh, this is the last days, what Joel was talking about. 
But men of Israel, let's talk about this Jesus that God delivered over to you and wicked men killed him. You couldn't keep him in the grave. Peter wants to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. So this is his main theological foundation. This is the heart of his message. This is the point of his message. This is the point of his message. And you see over in verse 36, I already pointed out in verse 36, he brings it all together in this one propositional statement. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified. That's the main point. If you get that point, you got the message. In a good message, it should be that way. You should be able to identify somewhere along the line, and the speaker should help you if he's got it identified in his mind. He should help you, and you should be able to say, look, get verse 36. Let us understand for certain that God has made Jesus the Messiah, both Lord and Christ. Get that? You got the message. And that's the main point of his message. You see, the apostles hadn't preached until they preached the resurrection. But I want you to see, and I've got to move rather quickly or the foyer is going to fill up on you. Um, And you can get the point here and you can get the content as well. Fourthly, I want you to see that there is an examination and an interpretation of Scripture. So Peter doesn't just stick with his own testimony. He says already, I'm a witness of this. But what does he do? He turns them again to the Scripture. And he goes to Psalm 16, this messianic psalm, and he talks about what David prophesied, that, the, that God is not going to let me rot in my grave. But then he says in verse 29, after he quotes that, but I say to you with confidence that the patri- patriarch David both died, everybody knows the history of Israel, David was a favorite of the audience, and he was buried, and his tomb is right over there, you can go see. So he's not, but he was a prophet, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to the grave or Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus' flesh did not rot. He was resurrected. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. So the first thing we see as Peter turns them to the Psalms, he's examining the scripture and he's interpreting the scripture. They probably never thought about Psalm 16 in light of the Messiah in the past. And Peter is shedding light. That should happen somewhere in the message, maybe more than once, where the lights blink in your brain and you're like, oh, I never really saw that before. Well, I see how that fits together. Isn't that interesting? How? Oh, that's very helpful. And that's what P- Peter's doing. He's unfolding the Psalms and letting them know that David prophesied. See, they, they loved the Psalms. They loved and respected David. And Peter is arguing layer upon layer. You saw with your own eyes his marvelous works. In other words, how could a normal man be that? And you know that David talked about this. And his David's tomb is right over there. But Jesus' tomb right over there is empty. That's who David was talking about. The lights are supposed to be turning on in the minds of the Israelite Jews there. He quotes this messianic psalm. But then he also references God's covenant with David. We won't turn there. You can look it up. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And this is what he's talking about. Verse 30 where he says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. David knew from a promise of God, that's the Davidic covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Put 2 Samuel, I just realized that is, that is wrong. It's 2 Samuel, not 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant, in your notes is what I'm talking about. And God promised to David that forever and ever, amen, one of his descendants would sit on the throne. So it's not, it's not David. And Jesus, that's why the lineage of Jesus in Matthew 1 and the lineage of Jesus in Luke 1 is so important. It's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. You see, Peter is 
arguing layer upon layer the evidences that Jesus is the Messiah. You need to not miss this. But I want you to notice that in the middle of all this, number five, there is careful confrontation with his audience. He doesn't let things get past them. He doesn't make excuses for his audience. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, right away. This Jesus attested to you by God with mighty works and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. Look at verse 36. He does the same thing in our key, the key verse of the whole passage, of the whole message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh, my word. You see what he's doing? He's unfolding the scriptures. He's got layers of his argument. He's pulling the audience in, but every once in a while, he points to their problem. You got a problem because you killed him. You don't believe that he's the Messiah. He's working them. So there's a careful confrontation. Notice he doesn't beat him to death. He doesn't evidently scream. He doesn't stomp and snort and carry on and tell them if they don't send money, they're going to you know, never make it. He just tells them the truth. That's what pastors and preachers, that's what, that's what should come from the pulpit, the truth. This is the way it is. And there is spiritual conviction and humiliation. It won't take us long to wrap up. He goes on, he quotes David again. Look at verse 36. He pokes him in the eye. Verse 37. Here's where the audience is starting to break down. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see, they're getting it. The unfolding of scripture, the confrontation from the preacher, the reality of what they've done in their behavior is coming together in their minds, and now they have another question at the end of the message. What do I do? I have a problem. That's where you should get. Notice that there is then a call for salvation. There is a call for salvation. He says in, back in verse 21, he said it, from Joel, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he laid the groundwork. But notice verse 38. And Peter said to them, here's what you do. They said in verse 37, what can we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There you go. Here's what you do. You repent. You admit that you're a sinner. You align with God in agreement on the horrific nature of your sins and you turn to God. Turn away from your sin. You turn to God through Jesus. Next Sunday is going to be part two on why do we do what we do and we're going to come start with this verse and we're going to try to understand what did Peter mean when he said repent and be baptized for your salvation. At the end of the story, 3,000 are going to be baptized and next Sunday we will explain more what repent means and if baptism is part of the formula of salvation or is it a response to salvation, why do we baptize the way we do around here? That's next week. Well, let's finish out here now shortly. So there is a call for salvation. If you notice in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter's going to do the same thing again. He's going to preach again uh, in, in front of an audience. And there, in verse 12, he's going to say, and there is no salvation in, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Number eight, there is a concluding exhortation. Look in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So we don't have the whole message written down here. With many other words, he exhorted them. And that's what preachers do. You need to save yourself from this messed up world. This is a crooked and perverse generation. It's just as true today as it was then. Repent of your sin, be baptized, follow Christ, become a new person in Christ. He is the Messiah. He rose from the dead. Joel prophesied it. David prophesied it. You saw the witnesses. The grave is empty. Follow Christ. He exhorts them with many more words. And then ultimately there is life transformation. So those who receive, verse 41, his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. A good day in Jerusalem. 
So what is your attitude about preaching? What's your attitude about preaching? About sermons? About God's word? Do you love it? Do you enjoy it? Sometimes we preachers can ruin it for you. And we don't do that on purpose. But you know, even though this is in many ways a one-way form of communication, it is very much two ways. Only one person is speaking, but that's why we have a pulpit. That's why I don't take away the pulpit so that you can see me. It's not about me. It's about the word of God that comes from the pulpit where the word of God rests. Here's the word. This is the preaching. I'm the voice piece, the mouthpiece. So you're listening, but it doesn't stop there. Are you an active or passive listener to the preaching of God's word? You need to be an active listener, continually asking, how does that apply to me? Well, what does that mean? What should I do? Like they did in Jerusalem. You killed the Christ. What do we do? Repent and be baptized. You see? Are you ready and willing to yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when the word of God is preached? Often, the Spirit of God uses this time when the preaching of the word is going on to convict us. Are you willing to yield to his conviction? Are you willing to yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And ultimately, have you believed and been baptized? Have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, believed and been baptized? Will you stand with me? We'll talk another day about conclusions and invitations because they're non-existent in the sermons here in the 930 service, and I'm sorry for that. But let's just take a moment to respond in our own hearts, and you yield to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I'll be down front for a few minutes. Have you repented of your sin? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Is Christ alone your only hope as we sang? Do you know that Jesus saves as the choir sang? Right now, in the privacy of your own heart, you can cry out to God and be saved. Admitting your sinfulness, believing that Jesus is the Christ. He rose from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's your Lord and Savior. Father, today we humble ourselves before you and the word, and we thank you for Peter and his great preaching, how the Holy Spirit took a tough old leathery fisherman and turned him into one of the most articulate messengers of the gospel the world has ever known. Thank you. Father, would you bless this pulpit? Father, would you help the elders of this church to always guard this pulpit so that the word of God is what is taught here and nothing else? I pray that you would bless Fellowship Bible Church through the preaching of the word. Challenge our hearts regularly, we pray, in this room on Sunday mornings that we would be conforming to the image of Christ and that we would be saved and save ourselves from this crooked generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.